Question two then, why is godliness in the body a problem for human beings and how has God solved this problem? Okay, now the reason I, I put that question in is because immediately before telling the Corinthians that they should glorify God in your body, Paul tells them you are not your own, you were bought with a price. That's what immediately precedes it. And in these words, which evoke the social reality of the prevalence of slavery in the first century world, he is reminding the Corinthians of the change that has taken place in their existence. To quote David Pryor in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, what he's saying to them is that before they began to experience the freedom for which Christ had set them free, the Corinthians were in the most servile bondage. They were slaves to themselves, their self-created desires, self-indulgence and bodily passions. Then came a master with the resources to set them completely free. He paid the necessary ransom. They had been set free from the futility and servitude of their previous manner of life. Their bodies were no longer chunks of flesh up for sale to the highest bidder in the slave market or available to a cult prostitute for a fee. They had been bought with a price and they belonged to a new master. His orders now mattered, not their own fancies or foibles. He now intended every physical faculty they had within them to express the glory of God. So far from despising their bodies, marked out as they were by all degradation and indiscipline of sin, he was committed to working out from within them the redemption of their bodies. Flesh and blood, particularly such dissolute flesh and blood, could never inherit the kingdom of God. But the power of his redeeming love could and would complete what the Holy Spirit had already begun. End quote. Now, if this is what Paul is saying, and I think it is, it raises two questions. First, why were the Corinthians in this state of bondage from which Christ had liberated them. Secondly, how had Christ liberated them? How had he, given that he had not literally gone to the slave market in Corinth and paid money for them? Now the answer to the first question is given by Paul when he writes in Romans 5.12, Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all men sinned. The one man Paul refers to here is, of course, Adam, And what Paul is doing is giving an abbreviated summary of the story of the fall in Genesis 3 within its whole biblical context. If we turn to the book of Genesis, we find that in Genesis 2, 16 to 17, God gives Adam a very specific limit as to what he can do with the body that God has created for him. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. And as we all know, what Genesis 3 then records, so Adam disregards the limit for the body that God has laid down by failing to exhibit godliness in the body, but instead eating the forbidden fruit at the behest of Eve, who is herself led astray by the devil, manifested in the form of a snake. Now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, did God say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and she ate and she also gave some to her husband and he ate. It's bodily action breaking the commandment of God. Seeing, acting, eating. Having eaten of the forbidden fruit, 
Adam eventually dies along with Eve, and according to the biblical narrative, he bequeaths to all human beings a corrupted nature, which leads them to rebel against God in their turn, and so suffer the same penalty for their rebellion. It's this state of sin leading to death, the temporal body, death of the body in this world, and the eternal death of the body and soul in the world to come, from which the Corinthians have been liberated as a result of the work of Christ. And this leads us to the second question, which is how Christ liberated them. And the answer is that Christ assumed, this is the point we made earlier, a nature consisting of a body and soul at the incarnation. Truly God and truly man of a reasonable body and soul consisting, as the Chalcedonian Confession puts it. And in the obedience of his soul to the command of God the Father and in the power of the Spirit, he gave up his body to death on the cross in the supreme example of godliness in the body. Here we have those three elements, body, soul, spirit. In order that by so doing, sin and death might be defeated forever in all who believe. And this truth is helpfully summarised by the great Swiss theologian Karl Barth in his commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, in which he declares that in the death of Jesus Christ, God took man's place in order to suffer in his place the destruction of sinful man, and at the same time to realise the existence of the new obedient man. The way is therefore open to restore the lost right of man, his right to live as a creature of God. The grace of God against which man sins triumphs in Jesus Christ. Now, Bart makes two key points in this quotation. The first is that in the death of Christ on the cross, the destruction of the sinful man was undertaken by God. That is to say, the death of Christ on the cross was the death of our old sinful nature. And this is a point which is underlined by Paul, who declares that when Christ died on our behalf, we died with him. Thus we read in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. And in case you missed the point, he goes on to add, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And 2 Corinthians 5.14, we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all have died. As the great Scottish theologian James Denning observes in his comments on this last verse in his Expositor's Bible commentary on 2 Corinthians, is it logical to say one died for the benefit of all, hence all have died? From that premise is not the only legitimate conclusion, hence all remained alive. Plainly, if Paul's conclusion is to be drawn before one died for all, must reach much deeper than this mere suggestion of our advantage. If we all died in that Christ died for us, there must be a sense in which that death of his is ours. He must be identified with us in it. There on the cross, while we stand and gaze at him, he is not simply a person doing us a service. He is a person doing us a service by filling our place and dying our death. It's out of this deeper relation that all services, benefits and advantages flow and in that deeper sense of for, for which Christ is at once the representative and substitute of man, is essential to do justice to the Apostle's thought. One died for all, therefore all have died. Now if we ask why it was that Christ had to die our death and his body on the cross in order that we might be saved, the answer is also given us by Paul, this time in Romans 6, 6 to 7. We know, he says, that our old self was crucified with him, that the sinful body might be destroyed, 
and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. That is to say, our fallen nature was slain in the death of Christ in order that we might have liberation from the domination by sin which our old nature necessarily entails. Christ's death brings together God's judgment and God's love. The cross is an act of God's judgment. It's penal substitution, it's penal activity. In that on the cross, the death penalty is carried out on, carried out on us as sinners. Our sinful existence has no right to exist before God, and therefore it is brought to an end. It is at the same time an act of love, because the purpose of this judgment is to destroy our enslavement to sin in order that we might be free to be the people God made us to be. This is a point forcibly made by Martin Luther in his lecture on Romans. Commenting on Romans 6.3, do you not know that all of us who were baptised into Christ were baptised into his death? Luther notes that in Scripture there is alongside the temporal death of the body a form of eternal death which is a very great evil in which it is the man that dies while sin lives and remains forever. This, he says, is the eternal death suffered by the damned. We die, but sin lives forever. However, there is also a form of eternal death, he says, that is a very great good, and this is the form of death that took place in Christ. It is the death of sin and the death of death, he says, by which the soul is freed and separated from sin and the body from corruption, and the soul is united by grace and glory with the living God, This is death in the strict and proper sense of the word, for in every other death some mixture of life remains, but not in this one, in which there is nothing but life itself, eternal life. It is only this death that the conditions of death fit absolutely and perfectly. Whatever dies in it, and in it alone, vanishes entirely into everlasting nothingness, and nothing ever returns from it. Indeed, it inflicts death also upon eternal death. Thus sin dies, and also the sinner when he is justified, for sin does not ever return, as the Apostle says, Christ dies no more, Romans 6, 5, sorry, Romans 6, 9. This, he says, is the principal theme of Scripture, for God arranged to take away through Christ what the devil brought in through Adam. And the devil brought in sin and death. Therefore, God brought about the death of death and the sin of sin, the prison of prison and the captivity of captivity. As he says through Hosea, O death, I will be thy death, O hell, I will be thy bite. Wonderful rhetorical language, but you see where he's going. It's this death, the death of death, the death of sin, that was undertaken on our behalf by Christ through his death on the cross. Our sins are no longer a barrier between us and God, because in Christ our sinful existence has been brought to an end. It is a closed chapter. That is why in Matthew's account of the death of Christ, the curtain of the temple is torn in two and the tombs of the saints are cracked open. Matthew 27, 51-53. The sin and death which barred access to God and kept the saints in their graves had been done away with by the death of Jesus Christ. Now, there is more to the work of Christ than simply the determination of our resistance to sinners. It's not simply a no. The work of God is not simply or even primarily a destructive work. It's primarily a work of recreation. And this brings us to Bart's second point, which is that the purpose of Christ's death is to realise the existence of the new obedient man. In the words of 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our body in his, sorry, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin 
and live to righteousness. We might die to sin and live to righteousness. This purpose was not achieved to the cross alone, because if all there was was the cross, then the story of God's involvement with mankind would have reached its terminus point on Calvary. If we would have a future, our old existence as sinners had to be replaced by a new kind of existence. And of course, this new kind of existence is what has been made possible for us by Christ's resurrection on the third day. The resurrection is an act of divine recreation, which is why it takes place in a garden, in which a new way of being human is opened up, in which we are not only dead to sin, but alive to God. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And why he writes in Romans 6, 10 to 11, the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that is also why Christ declares in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. So the cross and resurrection together are therefore a twofold divine operation as a result of which, to quote John Stott, we have died and risen with Christ so that our old life of sin, guilt and shame has been terminated and an entirely new life of holiness, forgiveness and freedom has begun. Or as John Calvin puts it, our old man was destroyed by the death of Christ so that his resurrection may restore our righteousness and make us new creatures. And since Christ has been given to us for life, why should we die with him if not to rise to a better life? If Christ therefore puts to death what is mortal in us, in order that he may truly restore us to life. And the last point we need to consider is how we enter what Christ has done for us by his dying and rising. And the answer to this question is that it's faith expressed in baptism. That is to say, it is certainly true and incontrovertible that according to the New Testament, we enter into a right relationship with God through faith, as verses such as John 3.16 and Romans 3.26 make clear. However, it's also true in the New Testament perspective, acceptance of what Christ has done leads to baptism, and it's in baptism that we appropriate for ourselves what Christ achieved for all humanity in his death and resurrection. What did did Peter say on the day of Pentecost? He said, what shall we do? Repent and be baptised. So as Paul tells us in Romans 6.4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in units of life. And similarly, Colossians 2.12, you were buried with him in baptism, which you also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And this, incidentally, is also the perspective from which the historic Anglican formularies view baptism. Thus, in the Catechism in the Book of Common Prayer, the correct answer to the question of what is the inward and spiritual grace of baptism is a death unto sin and a new birth unto righteousness. For by being by nature born in sin and the children of wrath, we are hereby made the children of grace. And if you look in um, Lee's excellent rendition of the homilies, and if you look on the homily of salvation written by Cranmer, He starts off, we're talking about how people saved. Infants, baptised as children, are thereby washed away from sin. He's quite clear. Now that's not that he'd not believe in justification by faith, but for him, faith involved baptism as well. As one writer has put it, baptism is the God-given rendezvous of grace and faith. 
So it's faith expressed in baptism that delivers the goods. That's the perspective, and that's the classic Anglican perspective as well. You can't, you can't divide the two. Finally, if we ask how we are unable to walk in units of life, the answer is through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit poured out by the crucified and risen Christ. See John 19, 30, Acts 2, 32 to 33. The Spirit given to us at our, given to us at our baptism, Acts 2, 38, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 who makes the new life wrought for us by Christ through his death and resurrection and ever-increasing reality in our lives and enabling us to relate to God as his obedient children. Romans 8, 1-17. Thus fulfilling God's original intention that we should live in a relationship with him, enjoying the same unity with him that Christ himself shared. So, the answer to the question of how the Corinthians were set free from their former state of servile bondage, the question with which we started, is therefore that they were set free from it by their participation in the death and resurrection of Christ on their behalf, through faith and baptism, and that they were likewise enabled to walk in newness of life through the Holy Spirit, poured out by the crucified and risen Christ, and received by them when they believed and were baptised. Paul's injunction to glorify God in your body in context, is a call to live out this new life that they have thus been given.